All right. Pharisee. Pharisee. When I say the word Pharisee, what comes to your mind? What images come to your mind? If you've been a Christian for a while, you might think of an individual, somebody who's, you know, perhaps a little bit pompous. You might think of somebody who's arrogant, perhaps. Maybe you think of somebody who's judgmental or, or, hyper, or, or, or you know, hypercritical or hypocritical. If you're a newer Christian or, or if you're still checking Jesus out and trying to figure out God and Jesus and church, you've probably heard the word Pharisee you know, in, you know, in non-church environments. And, and you know maybe enough to know that I've heard that word and it doesn't really have a positive connotation. It has a negative connotation. Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series together called Accidental Pharisee. This series is actually based on the book, uh, Accidental Pharisee by Larry Osborne. Larry Osborne's a, a pastor in Southern California of a multi-site church, a huge church, incredible church. And myself and a few other pastors had, had the privilege and opportunity to spend a few days with him in his home and just learning from him and listening to him and asking him questions and just kind of growing in our leadership with, with all that he's known and experienced. And, and I, I try to read all of his books. Uh, many of the staff read his books. The elders here at LifePoint, we've gone through a few of his books together. And this one is so incredibly important for our lives, especially with what God's been doing with us this year and where he's taking us this year. I believe that this is something that God had has and had for each of us. If you were to go back 2,000 years and ask the average Jewish person about a Pharisee, they wouldn't have the same response that most of us have. They wouldn't have that negative reaction that we have when we think of Pharisee. Because we're here, you know, hindsight, 2,000 years later. But back then, if you said, well, tell me about a Pharisee, the, the average Jewish person would have said something like, oh man, the Pharisees, they're pretty amazing. I mean, they're incredible people. They are so godly. They are so committed to God. They are so passionate for God. They are passionate for holiness. And, and we see the Pharisees talked throughout the Gospels and even into the New Testament. Jesus talked about them. Jesus played the Pharisee card once in the famous passage that we know as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And in that passage, Jesus makes a series of six statements. He says, you have heard it said, referring to their law, the law of Moses that God gave through Moses, you have heard it said. And then he went on to commentate. He said, but here's what I tell you. And so there's six statements. Here's what you've heard it said uh, in the past, but here's what I tell you. And for example, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And then Jesus went on to say, well, but I want to talk to you about that. I want to interpret that. I want to explain that to you. And I want to tell you about a murderous heart that shows up in anger and gossip and slander. And there's one example. And then another one, Jesus said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus went on and said, but I want to talk about more than just the physical act. I want to talk about the impure heart that he would even look lustfully at a person, that that would be the same as committing the act. And so we have these six statements. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And in the midst of those six statements, Jesus makes a, a couple shocking declarations. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says this. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the who? Of the, of the Pharisees, 
and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on, and then Jesus says, he says, you've got to surpass their righteousness. And then he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And he lists these out, and, and then he summarizes it all, or he ends up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And he says, after going through all, they've got to surpass their righteousness. Here's what, I, here's what your law said, but here's what I say. And then he said, you must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So think about it, if you're there listening to the sermon... Your righteousness must surpass the Pharisees, in fact, so much so that you have to be perfect. I mean, talk about a depressing sermon. You want to enter the kingdom of God? Then your righteousness must be better than that of the Pharisees, so much so that you're perfect like your heavenly Father. But wait a minute, Jesus. The Pharisee is about as close to perfect of a person that I can imagine or think of. And I have to be even more perfect than them? What was Jesus talking about in that passage? Well, Jesus was saying something. He was letting the people know that that not even the Pharisees, who they saw as the most amazing followers of God, not even they can measure up to God's standard of holiness. See, what Jesus was really teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is he was letting everybody know, you and I included. The Sermon on the Mount was meant to tell us, to drive us to our knees. It was meant to ultimately drive us to the cross where Jesus would hang, where Jesus would pay for our sins because Jesus is the only way to salvation. And that's what he meant in that passage, but he kind of laid down the gauntlet by telling all of us, your righteousness must be even greater than the Pharisees. You can't get there. You need Jesus. The Apostle Paul also played the Pharisee card one time. I want you to turn there to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. It's in the back part of your, of your Bibles, about in the middle of the New Testament. And let me set this up. The Apostle Paul was somebody who he himself was a Pharisee. And he talks about in this passage that he was actually the best of all the Pharisees. He was the best of the best. But here's what he said. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He said, but whatever were gains to me, and he's ta- context here is talking about being the best of the best of the best of the Pharisees, Whatever was a gain to me, because everybody would have viewed being a Pharisee as a gain, I now consider, what's the word? I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of, or better translation, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. And then he said this, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now what's he saying? I consider all that, being a Pharisee, all that, I consider it garbage. Now that word garbage in the Greek is the Greek word skubala, and and it's actually a very tame way to, to, to interpret what the word means. The King James is actually the only version that gives us a little bit of a picture of what that word garbage really means. And the King James uses a more accurate translation, and it says, I consider it all, what the King James said, I consider it all dung that I may gain Christ. Use your modern day word in your brain right now for what Paul was saying. Okay, you got it? I consider all that, don't say it out loud, but use the words that come to your mind. I consider all that garbage. Paul was saying that being a good religious Pharisee was absolutely worthless. Garbage, dung, compared 
to having this relationship with Jesus Christ. But when Paul wrote that, see, you and I, we listen to that and we go, of course, I know that, I agree, I'm good with that, right? We, we would say that. But when Paul wrote this, their response, they didn't have 2,000 years of hindsight and know what we know about Pharisees. When Paul wrote this, they'd have been like, what? Really? Ha, Paul, I don't know about that. There's no way. Who you are, your life, your experiences, your pedigree, how could you say that all that you have, all that you've been, how could you say that everything you've been about, how could you say that's all worthless? How could you possibly believe that compared to knowing Jesus? So, the word Pharisee came up quite a bit. The topic of being a Pharisee came up quite a bit. And we want to ask the question in this series, how is it that those individuals, those Pharisees, who people would have saw as the best of the best, those who are most passionate, those who are most committed to God, how is it that they, how is it that you and I, who can be passionate and committed to God, how did they end up as arch enemies and stand against all that God actually stands for? How did that happen? How did godly people find themselves against God? Well, it happened accidentally. It happened accidentally. It was never their intent or it was never their purpose to actually oppose God. In fact, they led lives that completely revolved around God. Uh, it's important for us to understand how incredible they were and what type of people they were and kind of forget for a moment our understanding of the Pharisees 2,000 years later. Back then, people would have known who they were and they were, these guys are incredible because their lives revolved around God. I mean, they prayed regularly more than anybody. They fasted regularly. They tithed regularly, meaning they were the people who always, always, always gave 10% and even more of their income to God. They abstained from sinful practices and behaviors. They were one, the ones who taught the Bible to others, which in our day is called the Old Testament. They were the ones who opposed the sexually immoral lifestyle of the Gentiles. They were, in essence, uh, the ones who were leading the way for the religion, the faithful. They were the ones who established synagogues for the Jews throughout the world so they had a place to learn about God and grow in their faith in God. The Pharisees were the ones who safeguarded the traditional orthodox beliefs of Judaism. And they safeguarded it and protected it against the creeping in of what was called Hellenism or maybe a word you and I might use of secularism. They stood in contrast to, at the time, the more, you might use the word, the more liberal Sadducees or, or Hellenists. The Pharisees were, in essence, the conservatives, if you will, of ancient Judaism. Politically, you could say they were kind of like, not exactly, but kind of like, the religious right of our day. Now, no, I didn't just say that if you consider yourself a conservative that you're a Pharisee. I didn't just say that. So don't email me that. But I'm wanting us to kind of get an understanding of feel, of flavor. They were kind of like that of their day. Larry Osborne said this in his book. He says, if we fail to recognize how spiritually impressive the Pharisees were, 
then we will remain blind to the danger of becoming like them. You see, this is so important for you and I to understand. They were incredible individuals back then. And if we don't understand that, and if we don't get out of what we know of them today, if we can't put ourselves back in that place, the problem is you and I are going to stay blind to the ways in which we can be accidental Pharisees, the ways in which we could accidentally find ourselves standing opposed to the very heart of God or what God really desires for our lives, that we could accidentally be enemies of God with the way we're living our life. See, the Pharisees made a fatal mistake. In their effort to pursue God, they took it upon themselves to be God's watchdogs, so to speak. To be God's, you know, spiritual protectors, so to speak. They were the ones who tried to be the guardians of the gate, the defenders of God in Judaism. And so when one day when God actually showed up in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, they ended up becoming God's arch enemies. How did it happen? Accidentally. Accidentally. They never intended to become what they became. It, it never intended to become what they became. It's a lot like having dinner at Denny's. No one plans to go there. They just end up there. <laughs> and no offense to our college-age students or the one or two of you that love Denny's, okay? In our own lives, we too can become accidental Pharisees without ever intending to go there. And before you know it, we find ourselves eating, you know, at spiritual Denny's in our lives. So over the next couple of weeks, what we want to do is we want to explore how does that happen? How does that happen to you and I? How is it possible for us to get to that place and what we want to do is we want to look and explore what we, it is that you and I can do so that we don't end up in a place of being an accidental Pharisee. So that we don't accidentally become enemies of God in the way that we're living our lives. And so God is inviting each and every one of us throughout this series to look internally and to be asking the question throughout the series in what ways have I accidentally become a Pharisee. God exposed to me the areas in my life where I've been an accidental Pharisee. And I'm hoping you'll take that journey and allow God to really speak into your heart to that. That you, you'll allow the Holy Spirit to expose that in your life and in my life. Now obviously, passionately pursuing God is a good thing, right? Right? Being deeply committed to God is a, is a great pursuit. But all good things can also have their own dark sides. You figure that out probably, right? Let's say you've had a major surgery. And, and some of you in this room, you've had major surgeries. You know there's something that's very good and very important for you after you've just had a major surgery. And it's called drugs, right? painkillers, and whether it's codeine or fentanyl or hydrocodone or whatever the case may be, you know that those are great, they're incredible, and they're needed because the Advil and the Tylenol isn't going to cut through the pain. And so some of you who've been there, you know that's the, like one of the greatest inventions ever when it comes to having surgery. 
It's great. It's good. But there's a dark side to it, isn't there? It's called opioid addiction. And we know the results of that and how it's killing our country today. It's been said that there's a fine line between what is a virtue and what is a vice. You see, a virtue is a great thing, but it can go astray. Leadership, a wonderful trait that has a dark side. It can become bossy or left unchecked. It can become tyrannical. Competitiveness can be a great thing. Isn't that true? It can help you win championships. And all of you Golden State Warrior fans, you are hoping that the competitive spirit of your team will rise so that you're down three to one, chances of winning, fat chance, but the chances of coming back and winning. You are hoping that their competitive spirit, their competitive juices really kick in. Businesses talk about having a competitive advantage. But there's a dark side to competitiveness or dark sides. It can alienate others. It can hurt others. It can leave others out if not exercised properly. In our family, we play a game called Catan. Anybody here ever heard of the game Catan? Is there? Okay, a bunch of you. Cool, cool. So in our house, we play Catan. And it's not some like meaningless, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, mindless game like Monopoly. Roll the dice, you know, and just whatever. Go around the board. It's not like Monopoly, right? It requires some things of you. It requires for you to bargain and to negotiate and to trade with one another and to convince other people that, that hey, if you make this trade, it's going to be good for you and it's good for me and compromise. It's this incredible game. And we play it at our house and we play. We're all highly competitive. And in this game, there's one of my sons doesn't particularly like to play. In fact, he doesn't really play much at all, and that's Cameron. And those of you who maybe know Cameron, you might understand this a little bit. See, Cameron, there's something about Cameron. Cameron has a soft side of him. He has this compassionate side to him. And when we're out there and we're going at it and we're trying to convince someone to, to, to trade with us and, and, you know, and we're competitive and we're like, how could you not see this deal? And our voices are raising. And, and for Cameron, that, that whole competitiveness is like he starts taking it personal. And we're not telling him he's an idiot if he doesn't take the trade, but he feels like an idiot. Because it was a great trade and he should take the trade. <laughs> so Cameron doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And it alienates him and it isolates him from our family when we're trying to play this game together. Competitiveness is a good thing, but it can have a dark side. Well, the question we're asking this morning, what are the dark sides of spiritual passions that can lead you and I to becoming an accidental Pharisee? What are the dark sides of our passions for God, being deeply committed to God that lead you, lead me to accidentally becoming enemies, arch enemies of God and the things of God and the heart of God. Well, the first one this morning that we want to look at is the dark side of spiritual passions is that if you and I aren't careful, our passion can drown out our compassion. Our passion for God can drown out our compassion. That's exactly what happened to the Pharisees. Their passion for God, their zeal for God, slowly, eventually over time, drowned out their compassion for others. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus is, is exercising this compassion and this love and this grace and this mercy, mercy to people, 
the Pharisees lost their compassion. They lost their compassion to those that they felt were worthy of, not compassion, but that he felt, they felt they were worthy of judgment. And so they turned on God. They turned on Jesus. Called Him a false prophet and a false teacher. Why? Because they lost their heart for those who were struggling. That can happen to you. And it can happen to me as well. We can lose our hearts you know, for the back of the line people. We can lose our heart for the not yet ready people. We can lose our heart for the struggling people, for the spiritually struggling people. We can lose our compassion for those who aren't like us, who don't buy into what we buy into and agree with what we agree with. In fact, there's a fascinating passion that talks all about this in Revelation chapter 2. Would you turn there now? It's the last little letter or book in your Bible. So go to the very end and you'll, you'll, you'll come across it. Revelation chapter 2. There's this church, it's the church in Ephesus, that they had incredible passion for God, but they had lost their compassion. Well, let me set the stage and give you context for what we're going to read in a moment. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John is, is given this uh, revelation, so to speak. He's, he's in a dream, and, and he's basically caught up into heaven in this dream, in this vision, and he's there before Jesus, and in heaven he's there before Jesus, and Jesus writes seven letters that he, give, that he wants John to basically give to seven of the churches that were spread around the Roman Empire. And so he says, I, I, I want to share these letters with you that you're going to now go pass on to these seven churches. And in these letters that are written by Jesus or said by Jesus, some of the letters to these churches are rebukes. And some of these, that what Jesus writes, are encouragements. Some are pretty harsh and some are a mixture. And one of the churches that Jesus writes to is the church that met in Ephesus. In fact, Paul, the apostle, wrote a whole letter to the same church, and it's called the Ephesians in our Bible. Paul either planted that church or he arrived very shortly after it was created, and Paul spent three years of his life in the church of Ephesus when it was a new church. And then after Paul, the next pastor for that church was a guy named Timothy. Some of you might have heard of Timothy. Paul wrote a couple letters also to Timothy when he was a pastor. And, and those are in our Bibles too, and they're called First and Second Timothy. So picture this. This church in Ephesus is planted by Paul, or he came shortly after. And for three years, he, and then after him, Timothy, were the, were the pastors, were the leaders of the church. I mean, this church has incredible leadership in the early days. They have incredible teaching. They have the best teaching you could ever imagine. Because can you imagine going, hey, who's your pastor? Oh, you know, some dude, you know, used to work in the yard here and all this, and he used to work on leather and all that, and he's, you know, doing the best he can. Who's your pastor? Oh, you know, the Apostle Paul. You know, the guy who knows more than anybody. Okay, so, I mean, that's what this church has. But something happened to the Ephesian church over the next 20 to 30 years. So let's read what happened. This is, this is Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, let's pick up in verse 2. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. In other words, Jesus is saying, man, when others bail out, 
When others are worry, weary, you don't quit. You keep going. Jesus said this about him. He said, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. In other words, this is a church, man, they call a spade a spade and they, they deal with sin and they don't let it slide. I mean, they deal with it. So much so that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Guys, doctrinally, the Ephesian church was dialed in. It's no wonder they had Paul and they had Timothy as their leaders, as their pastors. And so they were dialed in doctrinally and they knew when there was false teachings coming their way. Verse 3, Jesus says, you've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I mean, there's so much behind that. We don't have time to go into that this morning. But I mean, this is a church that was planted in one of the most pagan cities in the, in, in the whole Roman Empire. I mean, the temple of Artemis was there in their city. And, and Artemis worship was, 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 was throughout the empire, but especially there. And people's entire livelihood was built around the temple of Artemis. And you have these Christians in the midst of all that. And, and they kill little babies and they worship God, their gods by having sex. And they lived in, a, in, in an awful environment when it comes to sin. And they had to endure so much. And they've not grown weary. And so you listen to this church and go, man, talk about passion for God. Talk about perseverance. You talk about doctrinal purity and steadfastness. I mean, this is a phenomenal church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus goes on and says this, Yet I, and what's that word he says? I what? I, I hold this against you. In other words, it's not just something that, oh, you know, I kind of wish this wasn't true. He says, no, 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 I, I hold this. This is all great, but I hold this against you. What does he hold against him? You have forsaken the love you had at first. Some translations say you've left your first love. That's what that word forsaken means. That means that you've left, that you've abandoned, that you've departed. These Ephesian Christians, by all that they persevered and the doctrinal purity and everything that they had, they were on fire for Jesus. They were passionate for Jesus. And, and you know, really what matters to Jesus, but this passage isn't about losing that passion. This passage isn't about losing that passion. It says you left your first, not your first passion, you left your first what? Your first love. You've abandoned your first love. You've departed from your first love. Now that word love is very important to understand. There's a couple different Greek words for love that's used at that time and in Scripture. The word for love in this passage is the Greek word agape. Some of you have heard that word before. And the word agape love has nothing to do with feelings and has everything to do with behavior and actions. In fact, you might know, uh, if, if, you, if some of you have some uh, scriptural knowledge, you might know of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, probably most of us know that passage without necessarily knowing where it came from. If you've been to a wedding, a pastor usually re reads that passage because it talks about what agape love is. And it describes it there in 1 Corinthians 13. It says agape love is kind and it's gentle and it keeps no records of wrong and it's not prideful and it's not jealous and a whole series of actions 
In other words, agape love is not about how you feel. Agape love is what you do. And what the church in Ephesus had lost was this love in action. This love in action, having compassion on others, putting the needs and interests of others even above themselves. They've lost their loving compassion for others. Listen, they were incredibly passionate. Nobody was more passionate for them. No one was doing more than them. Nobody worked harder than them for God. Nobody persevered more than them for God through the trials and the difficulties. Nobody was doctrinally purer than them. They understood Scripture better than anybody. If the Ephesian church had been around, was around today, you and I, people would go visit them. They'd write books about them. Pastors would go and try to figure out, you know, what's the secret sauce in this church? And we want that to be a part of our church. But Jesus says, no, 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 hold on, hold on. You all think this is an incredible church, but you don't understand. Without agape, if you've lost your first love, your compassion for others, Jesus says you've actually lost everything. You've accidentally become like those guys who ended up opposing me. Without agape, without compassion on the way you live your life towards others, You've become an accidental Pharisee. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, that passage I mentioned, he, he talks about all this spiritual activity you and I can do. He talks about how you can pray. You can have prayer language. You can have this like the language of angels. He says you can move mountains if you have incredible faith. He says you can interpret the mysteries of God. He says you can be all this, you can have all this, but 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. But if you do not have agape, Paul said, if I do not have agape love, I am nothing. He goes on and says, you can be the most generous person on planet earth. He says, you can even die as a martyr for God. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. But if you do not have love, you gain nothing. I am nothing and I gain nothing without compassionate, active love for others. See, that's where the Ephesian church found themselves. Passionate, but lacking compassionate love. That's where the Pharisees accidentally found themselves. That's where you and I accidentally find ourselves when our lives are, are lived in such a way where we're moving along and we're, we're trying to follow God in our passions, but we accidentally end up going somewhere we never intended. We never intended to end up at Denny's. We, but there we are, and we're sitting and we're having a patty melt or a grand slam, and God's like, I have so much more for you over there. That's what happens to us. Our passion can drown out our compassion. Do you want to accidentally end up where God never intended? Because of your zeal, your, your commitment to Him, your doctrinal purity for Him. But yet, God says, I hold this against you. Because I want you to have a care, a love, a concern for others. 
You're gentle. You're kind. You give your life away. You're a servant to others. You don't keep records of wrongs. You don't hold it against them. You love this agape. You love, endures all things. It continually hopes. It never gives up. It sees the goodness in people rather than focuses on the ways in which people are screwed up. And they see the ways in which God can do the miracles in their life as God has done the miracles in your life. So love always hopes, always endures, always perseveres, always hangs in there. And God's calling you and I to that compassion. This, it's not just you and God, but towards others. If you aren't careful, your passion for God can drown out your compassion for others. So I want to ask you, in what areas of your life? Let the Holy Spirit right now stir you if He hasn't already. What areas of your life is your passion for God a good thing? But God says, but I hold this against you because your compassion for others is lacked. Where's that in your own life? 